Happy Mother's Day. How many of you are mothers? How many of you have mothers? Very good. Very good. Well, we're here today to honor our mothers. And, you know, Jesus had a Jewish mother. There's something very special about having a Jewish mother. We know that Jesus was Jewish because he lived at home until after he was 30. And uh, he, he took up his father's occupation. And his mother thought he was God. So that's how we know for sure that, that Jesus uh, was Jewish. But today we're going to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's going to be pretty special because there's a lot of misinformation out there about, about Mother Mary. You know, in the Catholic tradition, they have a thing called the Hail Mary. It goes, Hail Mary, uh, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and in the day of, uh, pray for us sinners and in the day of our death. And then, yeah, that's it. And, and the problem is in, in Catholicism, in the Roman church, a lot of stuff has crept in around Mary that has been confusing, and it is not always in line with what the Scripture teaches. And so we want to look at Mary today in terms of what the Scripture teaches. She was a phenomenal uh, lady. She was not a goddess. In the Roman church, she's actually equal to Jesus. The position of, of Rome is that she's actually a co-redemptrix with Jesus. Uh, she is, in the Roman tradition, also virgin-born. Did you know that? The Immaculate Conception does not refer to Jesus' birth. It refers to Mary's birth. Mary's mother in their tradition is St. Anne, and Mary had to be a virgin so she could be perpetually a virgin, and therefore Jesus doesn't have brothers and sisters in the Roman tradition. And there are reasons for that theologically, and, and that's created some confusion uh, through the years. But I want to talk to you a little bit about Mary today and understand that Mary is an incredible lady. And I, my guess is that most moms are incredible moms. You know, I lost my mom 18 years ago next month, and she did some things very well. She did some things not well, but uh, she was a reflection to me of God's love. I think that we don't have anything that reflects what God's love is like more than the love of a great mother. And you may have been blessed with a great mother, you may not, but if you, if you do have a great mom, you know what God's love is like. It's an unconditional, a giving love. And that was Mary's love. Mary starts out, uh, well, I want you to read this uh, Tim Keller quote. Keller's one of my favorite speakers, and I think he's true. A mother is only as happy as her least miserable child. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, we have four sons. And, and every day when they were at home, we'd wake up and say, okay, who needs us today? Who is, uh, who is the most miserable of the crew? Because with four, there was always somebody in great anguish. And so my wife was wise enough to pour her life into that child. A mom is really a tank filler. Did you know that? Kids wake up in the morning with a tank full of emotions. And over the course of the day, we're all like this. We get beat up and our tank empties. And by the end of the day, sometimes your children are being bad. They're not really being bad, it's just their tank is empty. They've used up all their goodness. And so moms that are good moms know how to fill those tanks. Am I right? And hopefully dads that are good dads know how to fill those tanks. But moms seem to be in better tune uh, with emotions than, than us dads. We, we kind of are, a lot of times we flatline and, and ignore stuff when we shouldn't. Well, Mary had a long uh, tradition in Israel. She's an ancestor of the earliest Jew, Abraham. The very first verse in the New Testament, and if, I hope you get to come to the life of Christ because we're going to put every event in the life of Christ in chronological order with all the Jewish stuff that we love to learn. Matthew 1, 1 says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. 
And in order for Jesus to be the king of Israel, he had to be related to David and Abraham. And that's the first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1 goes through about 17 or 18 verses, and it lists all the people in the family of Jesus all the way down to Mary and Joseph. Matthew 1.16 says, Jacob was the father of Joseph. So Jesus had a grandfather named Jacob. And Joseph was the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So Mary is in that Matthew 1 genealogy. There are only four women mentioned there, and she is highly esteemed as the mother of Jesus. Now, if you remember your Christmas story, you know that Mary uh, was a young girl, probably in her teens, and she was betrothed, engaged, binding legally to be married to Joseph. He had paid for her a bride price, and the marriage was going to take place sometime after one to two years of engagement so as to protect Joseph's reputation. If the woman got pregnant during the betrothal, he could get his money back if she was unfaithful to him. And so that's where Mary was when the angel found her in in Luke chapter 1. And the angel found her and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And Mary gave the most amazing thing. Her attitude was amazing. Not only her ancestors were amazing, her attitude was amazing. She responded, I am the Lord's what? Servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Imagine being able to say that to the Lord. If God showed up in your house today and and he said something way out of the box, to have that attitude of a teenage gal, to say, Lord, may everything you have said come true. Now, this was a big deal because Mary was going to lose it all. She was going to lose her husband. He was going to divorce her and get his money back. She was certainly going to lose her reputation in the community. Nazareth was a small town about the size of Bradley Junction, not many more than a dozen families down there. Okay. Anybody here from Bradley Junction? Good. It's better than Mulberry. I'm just teasing Mulberry. Mary also, under the Jewish law, could have been punished by death. She could have been stoned to death for having an adulterous relationship and getting pregnant. And yet this teenage woman, this teenage girl, shows incredible faith. And it takes a great amount of faith uh, to be willing to have a child. And if you have a mom that's done that for you, if you are a mom, uh, you are blessed. And so Mary says, let it happen. And then it says... Uh, after the Christmas story and Jesus is born and the shepherds came and left, you remember it says, but Mary treasured up all these words, pondering them in her heart what they might mean. So apparently Mary, as a young girl, is a very thoughtful girl. She's a faithful girl. She's a kind girl. She's open to what God wants to do in her life, and that equips her for being the mother of Jesus. I don't think she's unique, but her attitude is incredible. God, whatever you want to do with my life, I'm all in Uh, with you. And that continues in in Mary's life until Jesus is about 12. You know, the only thing we know about Jesus' childhood is that when he was 12, he went to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was about uh, more or less 100 miles, about a three or four day walk from Nazareth. And the whole city would get up. Everybody's pretty much related. You got all your cousins and your uncles and your aunts. And all three times a year, you would walk down to Jerusalem. You specifically would go when your son was 12 Because next year he was going to be 13, and what happens to a Jewish boy when he turns 13? He gets bar mitzvahed. He becomes a man under the Jewish system. So you would go as a 12-year-old boy, and you would watch what you're going to do next year. You would have to read the law, and there were prayers to be said, and then you would be anointed, and then you were declared a man. And so Jesus marches down there. Everybody's on a week-long camp out. They go to the Passover, and then they turn around and they head north to Nazareth. 
And all of a sudden, they get to the end of the first day, and Mary and Joseph look at each other and say, where is Jesus? I don't know. I thought he was with you. I don't know. I thought he was with you. Now, again, I'm not blaming them. They had at least six other children. I'm not sure they were all born by the time Jesus was 12, but their four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon were brothers of Jesus. Jude wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament. And then twice his sisters, plural, are mentioned. So imagine having a mob of kids and you're walking to Jerusalem, you have a celebration there, and then you turn around and you get one day's walk away and it's night and you're ready to camp and there's no Jesus. Have you ever left your child behind? We did. My wife is the greatest mom in history. In fact, her first book, uh, some of you know Gwen's a writer, her first book was called The Adventures of Mighty Mom. Here she comes to save the day if only she can find her keys. And when we were on a trip north one time, we, we had a big old conversion van and we stopped north of Jacksonville. Some of you heard this story and we needed to get gas and use the bathroom. And Zach, in the middle of the night, who's such a great older brother, most of you know Zach, he took baby Johnny in to use the bathroom. And then he brought him back to the van, put him into his seat, made sure he was secure, and then went to use the bathroom himself. In the meantime, Mom came out of the restroom, hit the driver's side, it was her turn to drive, and boom, down the interstate we went. Fifteen minutes later, it's dark, the kids are asleep, and my wife has that motherly intuition. And she says, where's Zach? And Zach, this was in the days before car seats and seat belts, he slept under the bench in the back of the van covered with a flap to the, to the bench. And, and I said, he's in the back asleep on the floor. And she said, somebody needs to check this. And lo and behold, we lifted up the flap and there was no Zach. Mama Bear turned that really classy van into an off-road vehicle. We cut right across the interstate uh, median at 88 miles an hour, burned rubber all the way back to the gas station. He was missing for about a half an hour. And when we got there, he got onto the, into the van. Zach's such a sweetheart. You know what he said? Why did you leave me there? That was all he said. But Mary and Joseph have this same experience. They get back to Jerusalem... Jesus has been missing now for a whole day, and I love this. When they saw Jesus, they were astonished. They were astonished because he was with the teachers at the temple, asking them questions, probably about his bar mitzvah. And his mother said in her best Jewish accent, Son, why have you treated us this way? I love this. Behold, your father and I have been looking. I don't think Joseph was looking at all. I don't think Joseph cared. But your father and I have been looking anxiously for you. I love this verse. So Mary did not have it easy as a mom. I think hers was a normal parent-child situation. And through Jesus' uh, growth, they had to endure what you have to endure. And the, the goal of parenting is to turn loose of my kids. The goal of motherhood is to turn my child into a child who is dependent on Christ and independent of me. And so there has to be a transfer in relationship of authority. And, and we have different authorities in her life. But they didn't understand the statement which Jesus had made to them. And he went down and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She was good at that. So he lived at home until his ministry started, and he put himself in subjection to his mom and his dad. He obeyed them. Children need to obey their parents. That's biblical, Ephesians 6, 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But there's a difference that happens when your kids are little and they obey you 
to when they get older, and they honor you. And as Jesus reaches adulthood, we're going to have a crisis because we need to figure out what's the difference between honoring and obeying. There's a big difference between obeying your parents and honoring them. When you leave home, especially when you get married, you are now no longer obligated to obey your parents. Your primary human relationship is no longer as a son or daughter, it's as a husband or a wife. That's hard to figure out. How many of you have sons? Let me just warn you of this. You can might talk to Gwen about I mean moms. How many moms have sons? It's really hard for moms with sons. It, ha- it has been in our experience. Okay? Dads with daughters, it's hard to give your daughter away to that creep who's going to marry her. But you can be buddies with him. You, know, you can watch ball games and smoke cigars and shoot useless animals and stuff together. <laughs> I remember when Zach and Heather got married, his father-in-law had raised three daughters. He said, Sunday at 1 p.m. you will be in my living room, you will be in a lounge chair, we will watch football together. I've waited 22 years for this. (laughs) They adore each other. But it's a dance that goes on with the mom and the daughter-in-law. Because, see, if you're the mom, you're the primary female relationship in the life of your son. And now you ain't no more. And there's this little dance that goes on between the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law if mom's got her boy. And especially if the son says to his wife, well, you didn't make this as good as my mom. Or my mom doesn't do it. If you're a guy and you say that to your wife, you should be smacked down. (laughs) Because the tension it puts in the relationship with your wife and your mom is not worth the trouble, believe me. So this is Jesus. He's grown now, but he's got to deal with the difference between honoring Mary and obeying Mary. He's obeying her as long as he is her young son, but now his ministry is going to start. And we have different God-ordained spheres of authority that God puts in our lives. This is a whole other sermon, but I'm just going to give you this for free. We have family authority, church authority, government authority, and work authority. And as long as those authorities operate in their correct spheres, we ought to obey them. In your family, your parent can say to your child, clean your room. You know, clean your room. But if your parent says to your child, steal money for the family or get involved in the pornography business, or whatever it is that's not within the realm of the family, it's overstepped its bounds, and you should not only be free to disobey, you're obligated to disobey. You know, a father should never tell his daughter to do something immoral. He's overstepped the boundaries of his authority. In the church, the church ought to teach you the teachings of the Scripture. Do not lie is a good thing. But the church should not say to you, you should give us your entire paycheck, and we'll give you the amount of money you need to live on. Believe it or not, there are churches that do that. They're called cults. Many do that, really. In government, government has a right to tax us. Not happy about that, but that's what the Scripture says. But government does not have the right to overstep its boundaries and say, you can't bring your Bible to work, or you can't read your Bible in the marketplace, you can't talk to somebody about Jesus. When government does that, you have the right, not only the right, the obligation to disobey. I have a friend who smuggles Bibles into China. They're disobeying the government because the government outlaws Bibles. They're not only permitted to, they're, God blesses that. And then work. You know, you have the authority of your workplace. Your boss has a job description and you owe it to him to do it. But he cannot overstep his bounds and make you do your job to the neglect of your family. See how that works? So that battle between obeying and honoring and 
authority and non-authority and where it oversteps its boundaries is, is a battle for all of us. And it was also the case with Jesus and Mary. Mary's appeal came on the third day of Jesus' ministry in the north. First week of ministry, he ministers in the south. And then on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, Cana is just like Bradley Junction, only smaller. And people were related to each other in both cities. They're right next to each other, four or five miles away. And again, it's a family thing. And a wedding is a two-day to seven-day celebration where the father of the groom invites everybody in for a party and the bride and groom don't run away on a honeymoon. They consummate their marriage at the wedding feast and they feast for two days, three days, four days, depending on how much money the father of the groom has. So Jesus has some relative or friend that's getting married and he's in town and mom says, come to the wedding. The disciples come. That's 12 more guys. That probably doubles the population of Cana. And that's why the next thing might have happened. The wine ran out. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, in her good Jewish way, comes to Jesus and said, they have no vine. Now, why did they run out of wine? I'm not sure, but it may be. There were just too many people there. And the last thing you would do in that, in that situation is run out of wine. There's some debate, is this wine that's alcoholic or wine that not? It's the same word. The word is oinos in Greek. And they had wine for a number of instances, but wine was a big part of the wedding. It wasn't to get you drunk. It was what they drank because it was a purified thing. You could drink wine without getting stomach virus. Okay? And it was a happy thing. Now, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Whoa. We've gone from the realm of, of uh, obedience now. I do not have to do this out of obedience because you're my mom. The word woman is a cute word in Greek. Don't call your wives this, guys. The word is guni. G-U-N-Y, gune. Okay. What does that have to do with you is really an old Jewish expression. It means what between me and you. It means there's nothing going on here that I'm obligated to be involved in. It's the same phrase when Jesus cast the demons out. They said, what do we have to do with you? We've got nothing in common here. And Jesus is saying, look, as my mother woman, and it's not a bad word, it really could be translated dear woman, my hour has not yet come. She knew who Jesus was. And she was ready for the kingdom. And she was ready for God to install the kingdom through her son. One time yet. And in the Gospel of John, four times, he says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Finally, at the end of his life, his hour comes. Now we've got tension. What are we going to do? We don't have the whole conversation. But apparently, something went on, and his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says, do you do it? Notice, it's not whatever I tell you, like a good mother would want. Mary's not saying, whatever I tell you, do it. Whatever Jesus says. Now, she's put herself under his authority. Good point. Moms, there's a time you need to do that. Okay. She submits to him. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now. And they took it to the head waiter, so they took it to him. And again, there were 180 gallons. And maybe somebody said, well, it wasn't a real miracle. He just threw in some wine tablets. But no, take it to the head waiter. The head waiter is the master of ceremonies. He's the one in charge of this social faux pas. He's terrorized that they're out of wine, and he knows. The head waiter, head waiter tasted the water. Head waiter tasted the water. Can you say that three times real fast? The head water tasted the waiter. 
which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the head waiter, head water, head waiter, say head waiter. Say it again. Now next time we say head waiter, you're going to say it instead of me. So the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the good people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. See, what you would do is on the first night of the wedding feast, you'd serve your best wine. Different grades of wine. We still have different grades of wines today. And if you have a glass or so of wine, then your taste buds are a little numb. And then you break out the wine in a box. Because after you've had some really good wine, the wine in a box doesn't taste any different because your taste buds are dull. You've kept the good wine to now. I submit to you it wasn't only good wine. It was the best wine. When Jesus did the miracle, he made the best wine possible. And so this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and watch this, and his disciples what? Believed in him. Why did they believe? Because they understood this was a miracle of creation. Only God could take wine and and make it out of water. Only God could create that. And John is using seven signs. If we come to the life of Christ, you'll learn all seven. And these signs are specifically designed to teach you who Jesus is. He's the creator. He's one who's joyful. It happens at a wedding. He's all about parties. Heaven is going to be a celebration. I think there's going to be good wine there. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mothers and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the ministry starts. We have the before the birth, the birth, the trip at 12 years old to Jerusalem, the first miracle, now the ministry starts. And Jesus ministers for three years, and Mary is along for much of that ride. And I'm sure she's a proud mom. But it's not easy being anybody's mother, and it's very difficult to be the mother of Jesus. Because by the last week of Jesus' ministry, he is arrested, put on trial all night six times on Thursday night of Passion Week, and then hung on the cross to die on Good Friday. And at that event was Mary. And so we see her anguish as a mom. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother Mary, and his mother's sister, whose name was Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in addition to the passers-by and the soldiers and the Jewish leaders, there was some close family there with Jesus to support him. Just imagine how painful it was to watch your son be executed publicly. It would be like going to the gas chamber or watching your child die in the electric chair, except that only takes moments. This took hours, sometimes days. And for six hours, Jesus hangs on the cross, and Mary is there. And I I submit to you, I don't know what it would be like. It is not normal for a child to precede a parent in death. Those of you who've lost a child, I grieve for your heart. But I also know that God understands what it's like to lose a son, because he gave his in our place. doesn't make it hurt any less, I'm sure. But it's good to know that we have a God who understands pain and anguish. And Mary was in pain and anguish. And yet in the midst of all of the oppressive evil at that time, Jesus looks down from the cross and he does a most amazing thing. See, those of you who are mothers understand your children are not perfect. Jesus was. 
Jesus never sinned. Jesus was never mean. Jesus never had an impure motive. Jesus never had an impure thought. Jesus never was mean to his mother in a bad way, although she still felt taken advantage of. But he looks down from the cross, and he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, his cousin, one of the twelve, standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And what he's doing here, he's not saying, here I am, I'm your son. He's saying, woman, from now on, this is your new son, John. See, James and John were the cousins of Jesus. They were part of the twelve. And he's entrusting his mother to the care of John. John's a young man. He is probably the youngest of the disciples. And according to very strong church history tradition, Mary went to live with John from that day and died and is buried in the city of Ephesus. I've been to the gravesite. John is also buried there after he is exiled in the island of Patmos. But think about that for a minute. Jesus had at least four brothers. He had at least two sisters. And he was trying to keep the law by honoring his mother. That to honor your mother and father means to take care of them financially. And he should have been able to say, look, Jude, James, Joseph, Simon, you take care of mom. Sisters, you take care of mom. And they were not there. They did not become followers of Jesus till after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he appeared after the resurrection to his brother James. Jude writes the book of Jude. How hard was that to be Mary and to know that you were being entrusted to your nephew and not to any of your own children? Mary had a life of pain and anguish and frustration at times. And yet she's a great lady. And she loves her son. And she loves her God. And she holds a great place in the history of the church. She's not deity. She's not equal to Jesus. But she's a very special woman. In need of a Savior, just like we are. But who embraced her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I believe that the greatest picture of God's love is that of a good mom loving her child unconditionally, in spite of all the angst. That's how moms love, who are good and godly moms. They don't always get it right. But we have a great illustration here. So what are we going to do with this? Three things. First, take time today to honor your mom. If you haven't done so, do it. Do a little thing for her. A big thing is fine, but you don't have to have the confetti and the jewelry and the trip to Bora Bora. Pick up your socks. Do something little. Just say, hey, Mom, I appreciate all you do for me. Maybe you have a mom that's not been a good mom. You need to forgive her. You need to forgive her. You may need to go to her grave and say, Mom, I forgive you. Because we have certain moms that were ill-equipped or, or sick or had other history or baggage that did not allow them to be good moms. It's okay. God didn't make a mistake when he gave you your mom. And you need to forgive her because God's sent Jesus to forgive her. You can forgive her. And then last, moms, make sure you release your children to God's perfect plan for them. Your kids are not your kids. God lends us these children for a period of time, sometimes as much as 18 years. But our goal in raising our children needs to make me, be to make them independent of us and dependent on Christ. Are you doing that? 
if you can release them as they go out into the world to have an impact for Christ, the rest of your life will be a wonderful relationship, I promise. Father, we thank you for Mary. We thank you for her faithfulness. We thank you for her family. We thank you for her steadfastness in the midst of what had to be trying times. We thank you today for our moms, and we pray that we would show them honor and respect and kindness and love. Thank you that you show us love oftentimes through our moms. Thank you that your greatest love of all was shown to us that in spite of the fact that we hurt you, you sent Jesus to die for us. Father, if anybody in here doesn't know Jesus, I pray they wouldn't rest until they've come to know him. Thank you for this day that we set aside. In Jesus' name, 